You're tuning in 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates, the interviews talk show where I speak with UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I'm joined by Eric Nologist, Susan Kennedy. Did I say that right, Susan? Yes. Okay, Eric Nologist. That means spider biologist. So um, we might stick with that one because okay. it's a, it's a yeah. mouthful. Technically, arachnologist is any arachnid too, and that encompasses more than just spiders. So. Oh, yes. Yeah, Aaron was telling me a little bit about this. What uh, what are some other arachnids? Scorpions are arachnids. Uh, ticks and mites are arachnids. What people call daddy long legs, which are often mistaken for spiders. Uh, those little, that's just like one little body segment on long, long legs. They're not spiders, but they're also arachnids. They're not spiders. Um, they're you not just, spiders. You no. just blew my mind right there. <laughs> that's a yeah, little known fact, but yeah, the, the the whole tale about them having the most venomous bite of any spider when they're not even spiders um, is also nonsense. They don't have any venom. They're totally harmless. So. Where do these things come from? Do you have any idea? These these myths. Yeah, these myths. It's a very good question, and um, yeah, I don't know. I think. It doesn't take much for something like that to get around. So if somebody just thinks they know it, you know, maybe they're mixing it up with an actual spider and somebody hears, oh, daddy long legs is the most venomous spider. And so they think it's, there are a lot of different things called daddy long legs. So then they think it's that one. And it's so fun to talk about dangerous, creepy crawlies. I think it, it really captures people's attention. So yeah. once it's out there, I think it just gets out there and then... The next thing you know, everybody everybody and their mother has been bitten by a brown recluse, even though they don't occur in the same area where brown recluses even live. So, Man, and just to think that that myth got around before the internet. Yeah. Even. <laughs> That's kind of amazing. Yeah, so, okay. So. Uh, do you have any other myths you want to debunk right from the beginning? Ooh, um, there's so many. The brown recluse thing is a really, that's, actually, that might be my soapbox, but unless, um, if Erin didn't address that one already. She did. Uh, so Erin did talk a little bit about which spiders are poisonous in mm -hmm. California that you have to worry about. Okay. And said not to be afraid of spiders. That okay. was pretty much. <laughs> okay. That's good. Yeah. that's. I'll, I'll go I'll go more specific then with the recluse for that because that is like everybody just insists that they know that they got bitten by one. And I always say, well, did you see the spider? Well, no, but I know it was a spider bite because I saw a spider in my room last night. And so it must have been that. And it's like, well, probably was an insect, probably wanted to drink your blood, probably was not a spider. You know, it's probably like a flea or a mosquito. Do um do spider bites have a very particular look? Because I thought I I thought that I knew what they look like, but I again I could be totally wrong. I I don't know but quite well enough to answer that. I mean I, I think that different different spiders have different venom and different people have different allergies or tolerances to them. So the likelihood of being bitten by a spider is so slim to begin with. But if you are, if you see a spider bite you and you know that you're bitten by a spider, um, you might react badly because um, the venom can be, it can be a mild neurotoxin. Even if it's not a dangerously venomous spider, it could give you a nasty rash or something. So I don't know that there, people talk about, oh, well, I saw two little fang marks. Um, that's not really a way to diagnose a spider bite. And usually it's not two fang marks. It's like two little bite marks from the proboscis of some biting insect instead. Um, and most spiders' jaws are so tiny that they actually wouldn't be able to bite people. A lot of doctors will also misdiagnose things as spider bites um, just because, you know, they don't have that expertise. That's not that's not what they study, so they might jump to that conclusion. Um, but all in all, we shouldn't be too worried about We spiders. really shouldn't be worried at all. I mean, 
the most likely you are to be bitten by a spider is when you're actively trying to smash a spider. They don't want to mess with you. They just want to live their lives. There are aggressive spiders in other parts of the world, but here in the U.S. we have we have nothing like that, so we have really nothing to worry about. I mean, you know, if you're in a place with a lot of black widows and you think one of them got into your shoe or something, then shake out your shoe before you put it on. It's highly unlikely because they spin webs and they're they're pretty sedentary. But yeah, generally, I don't know. It's it's kind of hard to say, and I shouldn't shouldn't just rely on anecdotal evidence. But I've never been bitten by a spider in my life, and I've handled thousands of them, so we have a lot less to worry about than I think a lot of people believe. Okay, so have you always been like a defender of spiders? I have, yeah, yeah my entire life. Um, I don't really know, you know, I guess I've always just liked underdog things, and I feel like they've always had a really bad rap. So when I was a little kid, I would play out in the yard, and I would collect spiders and, and uh, roly-polies, pill bugs, I called them, uh, millipedes, things like that, and, and I would try to give them little terrariums and, and keep them as pets. So I always appreciated them, and my parents were wonderful. They really encouraged me in that and never, you know, never tried to... I've, I see parents nowadays with their kids, and they say, oh, don't touch that, that's gross, it's going to bite you, and it's like, it makes me so sad because these... Uh, they're doing a disservice to their kids by maybe I shouldn't say that. No, <laughs> I will. Uh, maybe something I shouldn't say. Actually, I remember a few years ago when one of the parks in the Bay Area, the parents were complaining that they had put like a place for bees to make a hive. They were mm. like, there can't be bees in the park. They're going to they're gonna sting my children. It's so dangerous. And it's like, where, where are they supposed to be? This is you right. know, it's exactly where they should be. Yeah, that's nature. That's like that's what little nature they have left to live in. And I mean, bees... Again, it's like they don't want to sting you. I mean, wasps are wasps can be a lot more aggressive and nasty and, you know, I have my I have my nasty, you know, they they probably don't want to sting either unless they feel threatened, but they'll do it much more readily than bees. So it's yeah, it's I think there's just a lot of misconception floating around and it's passed on from generation to generation, but um uh, but yeah, I I just um I remember playing with spiders and just growing to love them and I think when you're a small child, small things are really appealing because you're bigger than them and you have, you know, some sort of, you know, I don't want to say power, but it's like, you know, there's so many things in your life that you don't control when you're a child. And um, when you can see this other tiny animal, it's like you sort of identify with it. My parents are really into natural history and nature. So they taught me that, oh, spiders eat mosquitoes. And I thought, well, that's great. I hate mosquitoes. <laughs> so I would, you know, I would try to stop my classmates and friends from smashing them a lot of the time. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. But that's, that's sort of been my my mission throughout my life is to make other people appreciate spiders more, teach them that they're they're not to be feared. They should be appreciated and, and studied because they have super interesting biology and they, they have a lot to teach us. So your parents are not surprised that you are in a graduate program studying spiders? Then. No, they're very supportive. So. And what about your undergrad? Was that in biology, classic biology? That was just biology. I went to a, um, a, small, a small liberal arts school called Earlham College, which is a Quaker school in... Um, Southern Indiana. And so it's it was too small to have a very specialized biology program. So it's just a biology major. But the faculty there were just fantastic. They're just the warmest, most uh, supportive and knowledgeable, enthusiastic people. And they had a just really strong background in natural history. So I started working with um, a professor named Leslie Bishop. And she wasn't my academic advisor, but she was she was one of my professors for a class. And I started work, working with her and um, two other students on a research project on spider biodiversity in the island of Dominica. Where where is that island? Um that's it's in the Lesser Antilles, so it's actually right between Guadeloupe and Martinique. It's just this tiny volcanic island. It's for such a small island, it's hugely diverse in habitat and 
and um, biodiversity. And it's a really magical place. And of course, you know, it's spiders, which I already love, and then a beautiful tropical island and with really interesting culture and rainforests and all, all sorts of different habitats. So yeah, it, it can't have been too bad because you're still working on spiders right. on a tropical island, just a different island. So. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's hard to you know it's hard to go back from that. It's hard to. And and um, what did you learn about spiders in, in Dominica? Dominica. Um, it was it was sort of a it was mostly just a survey. So it was like we wanted to see how many spiders were there, kind of. First, just out of scientific curiosity, like what is the biodiversity of spiders here? And then second, for conservation purposes. So, you know, what what's the total biodiversity? How do we frame that in a way that convinces people to protect them and protect their habitats? We also looked at how different habitats compare as far as their biodiversity and whether the assemblage of spiders in, say, a, a rainforest is different from a montane forest versus a dry forest. Um, versus a, a disturbed habitat like a garden. And then we also did a comparison of, of uh, diurnal versus nocturnal spiders. And so it was it was interesting. We found a lot of differences among habitats, a lot of differences among times of day. So as an undergrad, you must have really loved that experience, though. I mean, it was wonderful. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, probably my favorite thing about about the whole four years. Yeah. Okay, so spiders all the way, spiders through undergrad, mm-hmm. spider research project. And then how did you end up here at Berkeley? And I should say you're not in the uh, biology, quote unquote, mm-hmm. department, because I'm in integrated biology, but you're in a different department. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm in the Department of Environmental Sciences, Policy and Management. And um, what I study is really more biology, biology, um, natural history, biology. Um, and that's the fact that my advisor is in the department that she's in is sort of a, a relic of a pastime when when environmental science policy and management encompass the agricultural department. So everybody who's associated with entomology, which is the study of insects um, and other arthropods, is in that department. I took I took a few years off between undergrad and grad school, but I always knew I wanted to come back and continue studying spiders. And so when I started looking at grad schools, I started looking for advisors first. And I went on the Journal of Arachnology, which is this um, this journal of spider and other arachnid related science and they had a list of people who of professors who are who are still active and taking students so i saw rosie gillespie's name she's my advisor um and i saw her research which is super exciting she's done tons of work on lots of island systems and has been looking at these really big questions on biodiversity patterns and evolutionary processes and has worked with these adaptive radiations which are groups of uh, closely related species that have sort of explosively diversified into lots of different species over a short time. And they're often found in island systems. So all these things appeal to me hugely. So I, I applied to her lab and yeah, and here I yeah. am. So do you, ha- can you tell us why islands are often host to these rapid diversification events? I might not be able to state this the most eloquently, but islands uh, islands are isolated. They're they're isolated from other land masses, usually by by a body of water, right? And they're isolated if it's an island chain or an island system. They're isolated from one another as well. So you have these sort of replicated habitats, where there's isolation between them. And when habitats are isolated from each other, there's not very much what they call gene flow, which is uh, species or organisms moving from one habitat to another and potentially interbreeding with each other. And if they can't interbreed, then they're going to continue evolving without exchanging genes. And they're going to, over time, they're going to become more and more different from one another to the point that if they come into contact again, they're no longer able to reproduce with each other. So you end up with these separate populations, um, which ultimately turn into separate species. 
so just to be like a complete sci-fi nerd, this would mm-hmm. be like the idea behind if humans went into outer space and they went so far away and they were like completely separate from humans here on Earth, then maybe when they came back in this fictional mm-hmm. universe, they would be so different because they didn't interbreed with the humans on Earth that we would be different species. Yeah, these genetic incompatibilities might just build up enough to the to the point where we're two different species. Yeah, that could yeah. be in our future. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Okay. Back on track, though. Uh, so I would love to know more about what your lab does. And I've actually spoken to someone in your lab before, mm-hmm. uh, Darko, who has moved on uh, to Santa Cruz. But what does your lab do and how is what you do different from the other people in the lab? Um, it's interesting right now. So I've, I'm have i the fifth year. I've been in here for a while. And I felt like for my first couple of years, we were all sort of working on different things Um and now we've all, a lot of us are collaborating, which I think is really wonderful. Um, we're really drawing on each other for support and stuff and, and helping out with these various projects. But I mean, Rosie works on a lot of different systems, my advisor, but but her, one of the systems that she's done a lot with, and in fact, she's pretty much discovered are the Hawaiian Tetranatha species uh, spiders, which are this adaptive radiation. So she's, I mean, she discovered and described a lot of these species. And so many people in our lab historically have studied them as well. So right now I'm studying them. There's a postdoc in the lab who's studying them. Yeah, I don't know. Should I? How much detail should I go into here? Like, well, just uh, mostly I'm interested because I know that there's a big focus on tetragnatha spiders. Is there a common name I can call them? There, it's um, it's clunky, but the the long jawed orb weavers. Oh, the long jawed orb weavers. Yeah. Okay, well, what, we'll we'll decide which one. One of my one of my other goals in life is to come up with a common name for them. That's more appealing to the public because long like i mean they are long they have very long jaws um but it's 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 just too many words yeah (laughs) Yeah. we need something cute and you know anyway but yeah um yeah so there's uh a postdoc in my lab um henrik is a genomics guy and he's done tons of work on on the tetranatha and on other hawaiian predatory arthropods with all these studies of how their dna uh degrades over time and what they're eating, how their ecology intersects with their evolutionary history. Um, and I'm working on that question as well, particularly with the diet and their niche ecology and their evolutionary history. Um, June Lim, who I think you might have interviewed yeah. as well. Yeah, so he works in Hawaii as well, but he works on plants. But it's an interesting, it's interesting because it's a similar, it's kind of a parallel question of this adaptive radiation of his peperomia plants and and how they got there originally and how they've diversified over time. Um, Ashley is working also on Tetranatha, but she works on a completely different uh, method of, of looking at their sexual behavior and their, um, their chemical communication. So nobody has yet actually characterized, uh, you know, a lot of arthropods, insects, spiders, and, um, and other creepy crawlies use chemicals to communicate. So sense of smell is really important for them. And it's been shown in a lot of other spiders to be important. But with this particular system, nobody has studied it yet. So... So she's characterizing the chemicals that they release and how they perceive each other. Um, Natalie, who just joined our lab last year, is working on um, on parasitoid wasps in Hawaii, and also and she's she's you know she's at the beginning, so she's got a lot of a lot of different directions and a lot of questions, but looking at patterns of divers- diversification and ecology as well, which parasitoids are infecting which hosts and um, how it's affecting the whole ecosystem. So those are and there there are a lot of other folks in the lab too who are all working on these. These really interesting questions. Those are the people I, I interact with the most um, the most regularly, and we're all we all help each other out with a lot of stuff. So it's yeah, it's a great dynamic. 
If you are just tuning in, you're listening to The Graduates here on KLX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson. Today, I'm speaking with arachnologist Susan Kennedy in the Department of Environmental Science Policy and Management, telling us about her love for spiders and her research. Although you mentioned everyone else in your lab, but you didn't tell us what you oh, exactly study. Right. <laughs> so um, so the whole question of, of how ecology and evolution uh, interact with each other in the basically in the the evolutionary history of a group of species. That's that's the broad question I'm interested in. But most most interesting to me, you know, aside from the fact that I love spiders and I want to study anything about them that I can, um, I'm interested in their diet. I think that spider feeding behavior and diet is it's a quickly growing field, and it's we're getting more and more exciting data on what spiders actually eat, because the, the conventional wisdom has always been that they'll just eat anything they can. They're just these opportunistic predators and they will eat each other which we you know they eat each other a lot we've seen a lot of that um females we eat males when they're courting often i'm sure aaron talked about that a bit too yeah so yeah there's this idea that they'll just eat anything but there there's been evidence of certain spiders that are specialized on eating certain things some of them for example are specialized on just other spiders so they have to have these special uh, adaptations that allow them to immobilize and, and kill another spider without getting bitten themselves, without getting uh, envenomated. Um, and then there are ones that are able to eat things like ants, which are also really noxious. And ants have a lot of defenses of their own. They have these powerful mandibles, and often they'll, they'll spray acid at their enemies and things like that. So a lot of spiders will stay far away from ants, but some actually, um, black widows, for example, are actually able to eat ants and do quite well with that. So I think it's really interesting to look at what spiders are actually eating, what they prefer to eat. And when you're looking at an adaptive radiation like the Tetranatha, where they are super diverse and a lot of them are co-occurring in one habitat, you really wonder, well, what, what allows them to be different species in this habitat? Aside from the fact that they're not reproducing from each, with each other, what makes them so different? And how are they all coexisting on a limited number of resources within one space? So the idea of um, ecological niche partitioning, which is where you have a bunch of species together and they're they're using slightly different resources from one another, and that way they're not competing with each other. They're all able to um, to coexist and and do pretty well. That's something that I find really interesting and and. It's kind of a difficult thing to demonstrate in practice, but we do have some evidence that suggests that these spiders are doing that in their habitat, that they're possibly using different resources. They're using different strategies to hunt. So when you, so you're interested in diet, what are the ways that you can actually see what is a, a spider's eating? Do you just have to like camp out next to the web and, and see what's going on? Or So that's, that's almost the way people, people have done it sort of like that in, in the past. And yeah, I mean, it's certainly... There have been a lot of studies published of observational spider diet where you're just finding spiders. You might find a spider that has prey in its jaws, and so you know, okay, you're eating this for sure. You might find prey in the spider's web, which can be really helpful if you know that the spider actually eats that prey, but sometimes the prey is just sitting there and you don't know if the spider plans to eat it or if they have eaten it. You know, some spiders, spiders digest externally, so they just basically regurgitate a bunch of digestive enzymes on their prey, and then they suck up the, the liquefied prey. Um, and usually it's just the insides of the prey, and they leave behind the exoskeleton. So sometimes it's hard to tell if the prey has even been consumed or not. Other spiders chew up their prey, so, so then it's easier to tell. But, but yeah, the, of course, you know, the return on investment for going out and just observing spiders and seeing what they eat is 
relatively low. I mean, you have to spend a ton of time just finding them and being lucky enough to see them eat. Uh, the spiders that I study are nocturnal, so I go out there with a headlamp. You know, my headlamp shines on their web, and then moths fly over, and the spider gets the moths. And so that's great for the spider, but it's, you know, it's not real data because who knows if they would have eaten that if I hadn't been there shining my light on their web. So that's sort of the traditional way. Uh, people have done some some PCR-based DNA studies on, on spider gut content as well, where they're they're trying to target a certain marker. And that they get some data from that as well, but uh, just these methods have been limited um, until recently by things like how, you know, if you can keep the spider cold before the DNA all degrades, if you, you know, if you know what you're looking for, in the past, you were only able to really look for one or two different things at a time. So actually, the method that, that we're using now in my lab is um, is a metagenomic method of just crushing up the whole abdomen of the spider, which contains digestive remains of, of all this prey. Then we uh, we add a actually a size selection step for the DNA. So we, not to get into too much detail here, but we, we basically choose, um, we selectively take out most of the DNA that that's more degraded. So um, that's the, the DNA of the prey that the spider's eaten. It's been digested, so it should be fairly degraded. And we try to get rid of the stuff that's higher quality because the high quality DNA belongs to the spider itself. So then we, with all the this digested, low quality, small DNA, we run a couple of PCRs and we, we amplify markers that um, mostly CO1, which is which has been sequenced for a lot of different arthropods. And then we submit it for sequencing and, and um, get back all these reads, and then we search online. Uh, there's this big online database of all these DNA sequences, and we use that to identify the, the taxonomy of the prey. Um, so we've, we've been working on this for about... Uh, we've, we were testing it about a year ago, and we've been working on it with, with Hawaiian spiders since April or May and are getting some, some pretty exciting results, and we're almost ready to send off our next big batch and get more results. So, so more to come soon, but it's, it seems to be working really well and we're getting um, pretty well resolved, fine scale data on what these spiders are eating. And it's um, so far is looking pretty different for different species. So that's really exciting. How many prey items would you normally expect to find? Like in terms of DNA, like, uh, is it like, are they eating 50 different things or just two different things? That's a good question. I mean, if spiders are really generalist and opportunistic, you'd expect to find whatever they happen to co-occur with, right? Whatever they whatever they live with and, and are strong enough to take down. But then, of course, there are spiders that specialize on eating other spiders or, you know, web builders are probably going to catch more flying insects than, than ground-walking insects. Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. So it depends on the spider. Yeah. What about how, uh, how long does the DNA last? I mean, are you getting, like, their last meal or are you getting what they've been eating for the last week? How far back can you go? It seems like we're actually going, we're going back um, at least a couple of meals, which is really, really exciting. And it's not that surprising when you think about it because spiders can go a very long time without eating. So when they eat, I think that they tend to retain the prey in, the, in their abdomen for a, a pretty long time. Um, they can store those that energy until they get their next meal. But, you know, it's also, it's it's exciting because we weren't sure if we were going to be able to go very far back because as the DNA breaks down, you know, maybe the the fragments that we have left are too short to amplify successfully. But, but we have found within a single spider, we found two or three completely different taxa of organisms. So it seems like, and, you know, some of them are really well represented, which is probably the ones that were eaten the most recently and others are a little bit fewer, so they probably are more broken down or more of them have been passed through the 
the digestive system already. So usually it's only one insect or or small prey item that's going to be each meal. They don't eat like a bunch of they don't have like a banquet going. Mm. Um, well, I don't know. <laughs> if you feed, I mean, if you have a spider in captivity and you just feed it over and over again, I think it'll probably keep eating for a while. But in nature, I don't think it's very common for them to come across multiple prey items all at once. That's the, that's the limit of my knowledge on that one. Yeah, no, not, no worries at all. What about how do you, uh, you mentioned that you crush up the spiders. So does that mean that you're going to Hawaii to capture these spiders and then bringing mm-hmm. them back here to California? That's right. Yeah. So we do. Um, that's that's the one thing I find really sad about studying spiders is that we do have to kill a lot of them. Um, but I hope that it, you know, I hope that the results will be worth it and and ultimately will justify more of a conservation effect in the long run of people knowing more about them, caring more about them and wanting to protect them. But but yes, we traveled to Hawaii. I've been there four or five times, I think. The first couple of times I went, I was doing an ecological study where I did observations in the field. So I was there for much longer periods of time. Um, and more recently, I've gone and just collected spiders and brought them back. So that's usually a little bit quicker. Should I talk about how we collect them? Yeah, definitely talk about how you collect them. I just wanted to make sure that I was painting you correctly as that person on the plane with like a box full of dead spiders. Oh, but. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I can't take them in my carry-on because there's, um, we, we preserve them in alcohol, um, which is which is the best for saving the DNA. But you're allowed to send them in your check baggage, thankfully. So I always, I always put them in my check baggage with a very earnest, heartfelt note saying, these are for my PhD research. Please call me if you have any questions. And I put the permits on there too. So <laughs> if the TSA has any problem, they can hopefully talk to me before they try to throw anything away. And yeah, so yeah, it's um, it's always exciting. It's either flying with them or shipping them back, and shipping them is probably a little bit less stressful. But then it's yeah, you feel better when they're with you. It's yeah. a little nail bitey until until yeah. you get them back. For sure. So so how do you collect them? What's your strategy? There are a lot of ways to collect them, and actually, if you go to Hawaii, if you go to the native forests of Hawaii at night when these spiders are active, you can almost just walk around. You'll see them everywhere. It's really magical. As soon as it gets dark, there's just everywhere you look there are these spiders and lots of different species of them all all together so you can just walk around with a vial and with most of these spiders you just stick a vial underneath it and the spider gets a little bit scared and it drops down because the natural response to spiders usually when they're when they're threatened is to drop and they'll they'll drop on a on a line of silk so that they can find their way back up again if they need to but they drop and they drop right into your vial because your vial is sitting there so that's one way. If you're out during the daytime, the spiders are all deeply in hiding, so you probably won't see very many of them. But we do something, this method, which is basically called beading, where you hold a beat sheet, which is this um, piece of fabric held open by by some sticks. So it's like a, a flat square of fabric. Uh, you hold that underneath the vegetation and you you hit the vegetation with a stick. Or sometimes if it's more delicate, which a lot of, the, a lot of Hawaiian uh, forest vegetation is ferns and things like that, so you don't want to damage them. So you can just grab the fern and shake it a little bit, and um, everything that's on there just drops down onto your sheet, and then you collect it off to the sheet. And you find just, yeah, just gold mines of spiders that way, so. Very cool. Very efficient. Man. Well, t- man, this, this episode has, like, flown by because we're, we're actually <laughs> at a time right now, believe it or not. But uh, two final questions. Mm-hmm. One, do you have any shiny results you want to present us with, other than the fact that it seems like different species are eating different things, or if it's top secret, you know, it's it's no big deal. The yeah, the the diet question we're we're still working on that, so we don't have that out yet. Um, so I'll, I'll hold off on on the preliminaries of that, but it it does seem very promising. Yeah, it's well, we we did we recently published uh, with um, Henrik Krahenwinkel, who's the postdoc in my lab, who's working on these ecological questions with um, and all these all these DNA and genomics related questions. Uh, we just put out a manuscript about a month ago, 
which is just describing the method that we use for the uh, for the prey sequencing and and the the enrichment step where we selectively choose the smaller the more degraded DNA is a big part of that. So that's exciting. That's, yeah, congratulations. Thank you. And yeah, we're yeah as far as the. Okay, top. We'll just call it top secret. Yeah, <laughs> yet to cool. come. So keep an eye on your work if you want to know more about this. And then, yeah. So this always there's always time to ask to ask you to stand on the soapbox and mm-hmm. and tell us if there's anything that you want the public to know here in the Bay or around the world where people can listen to this show. Um, is there anything that you want to tell them about spiders or about biology or about what you do? I would really like everybody to know that I would like everybody to believe. I think a lot of people know, but they just don't believe it in their heart, that spiders are tremendously beneficial to people. Uh, you shouldn't kill them. You shouldn't be afraid of them. They're just living their lives, and they're eating things that are bad for us. They're eating mosquitoes. They're eating fleas. They're eating icky stuff that that actually can be harmful to us and insects that can actually spread disease. Um, in fact, there is a, a recent article in the Journal of Arachnology about two different species of jumping spider that specialize on eating mosquitoes. And I believe both of them were found to prefer mosquitoes that had just fed on blood. So it's like, and they, you know, they address the whole question of, well, do the spiders like the blood too? No, the spiders don't like the blood. They can only eat the, the actual insects. But this is such a beautiful example of spiders being directly beneficial to people by taking out these these harmful mosquitoes, which are spreading deadly diseases. Another thing I'd like to say just about brown recluses, because there's so much misinformation about them out there. Uh, the brown recluse has um, has a nasty bite that causes uh, necrosis of the tissue. It's usually not deadly. It can be deadly if people are immunocompromised or very young or very old. They're super unlikely to actually bite anyone. They're not aggressive. They might bite you if you know you know if you roll on over onto one by accident. If you stick your foot into a shoe that has one, so you know shake out your shoes. But more importantly, they don't exist in California. So every time somebody tells you they got bitten by a brown recluse in California. Don't believe them. And they will they believe it really strongly always. It's like, well, no, I, I know it was a brown recluse because it looked like a you know, it looked like a red rash and it was probably a staph infection. That's usually what it is. Brown recluses live in southeastern US and that's about it. So um, so we don't have to worry about them here. We do have black widows, again, highly unlikely to bite anybody. No, I think this is a really good point, especially I mean, especially these days when conservation is so important and just having an appreciation for nature is so important as we like face this turning point in terms of whether or not we care enough to protect it. And so it's really important for people to know that spiders are really good for us and they're not harmful. And it's something that we should actively think about conserving and, you know, preserving for future generations. And yeah. Yeah, that's that's a really that's a really good point. And in addition to being beneficial to us as you know by eating insects and everything they're really important in the ecosystem and they're really important part of the food web Um, so they're eaten by lots of other animals that that we do care about you know things like birds and reptiles and mammals that are usually a little bit easier to sell on the conservation front Um, spiders are a really important food source for them and just an integral part of any ecosystem so yeah so spiders yeah (laughs) excellent uh, well, we're out of time here on The Graduates. Uh, you've been joining us here for another episode of The Graduates. As I said, uh, it's the interview talk show where I speak with UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world, including in Hawaii. I've been speaking today with Arachnologist Susan Kennedy. That means spider biologist, right? I'm saying it right still, That's right? right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And other arachnids too. But and other arachnids too, right yeah. Um, scorpions, for yes. example. See? Yeah, I'm learning things. 
things. Uh, my name's Tesla Munson. Again, Susan Kennedy has been on the show today. She's from the Department of Environmental Science Policy and Management here at UC Berkeley. And she's been telling us all about her work on spiders and her lifelong passion for spiders, which I really appreciate. A lot of times when I ask people if they've been doing something their whole life, the answer is no. But you really are one of those people <laughs> who's like, I love spiders. I'm going to study them. I just can't you leave are. it alone. Yeah. yeah. Why should you? Why should you? Uh, so, uh, We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of The Graduates, but until then, stay tuned. You're listening to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley.